Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. All right. Welcome, everyone. I'm Ross Young here with G. Mark Hardy. And today we have a special episode where we're going to talk about the global war on email. That's right. It's a war that is affecting small businesses, large businesses in the U.S., overseas. Everybody wants to do something with your email, which you may not approve of. And coming from the front lines, we have GMARC. GMARC, tell us a little bit about the war on email. Oh, Ross. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm trying to pronounce How will we pronounce it as an acronym like Huawei? In any way, what we find, though, is that like anything else we'd like to talk about on the show, we really need to start with a business problem. Why are we talking about it? Why is it worth your time to listen to this episode? And this one, I think, is going to hit for just about everybody. Now, why do I say that? Because security breaches involve humans in your organization. Let, let's face it. Uh, you take a look at the number or the percentages that are out there. Uh, Verizon data breach report said about 78% of cyber espionage attacks involve phishing attacks. Roger Grimes, who's the chief evangelist, security evangelist for No Before for phishing, puts a number at 70 to 90% of all the security attacks. And if you think about it, we've had years to develop all this really, really great security technology. In fact, if it's configured correctly, which is an entirely different question, it's nearly impossible, except for discovering a zero day, to get through, to break into your systems. And so what do attackers do? Do they give up, say, hey, I guess we're going to get a haircut and uh, go ahead and commute into work and go pay our taxes? Heck no, they're going to go ahead and say, let's go ahead and go after the humans. Best way to get after the humans is through email. So if there's any organization out here that does not use email, you can tune us out. Otherwise, you should keep listening. That's right. So every organization typically has email. We're going to be sending emails to and from not just internally, but externally. We have third-party vendors we're sending things to. We're making payments to places. We're receiving invoices from third parties. And those create opportunities for attack, right? We're hearing a variety of different terms. You'll, you'll often read the term BEC, business email compromise. You'll hear the term ransomware, all sorts of, of different ways that bad guys may try to attack your system. Gmark, what do you think are the most common things people have to worry about with email? Well, of course, with email, the issue is it, it causes people to take actions. Now, if you go back here, so I remember 20 plus years ago, we had a CC mail instantiation at our company. And with CC mail, you could send or receive text messages. Well, not really text messages. They were emails, but really they were just text. There was no active content. There was nothing you could click on, no dancing bears or no downloadable stuff. And in fact, I remember it was to the point where the entire company's mail server the CC mail server was contained in a single file that you could download and put on your hard drive, which of course created its own issues with regard to security. But nonetheless, today, 
email is pervasive. We get it personally, we get it for business, we get it on our cell phones, on our laptops, on our desktops, on our tablets, uh, you, on your, your phone, I'm sorry, your phone, your, your watch. And so it's pervasive. Because it's pervasive, it means that for us as defenders, we need to make sure that every single one of those systems, both operating systems, hardware, and the uh, software that's running it, has to be secured. And of course, attackers only need to find one hole. In addition, what happens is, is that people get so plugged into email that they just respond reflexively to things. And so someone says, hey, attached is this or attached is that, or what about this? Spammers have figured out how to get you to respond reflexively. If you remember one of our early episodes about the art of persuasion, Dr. Cialdini, we find out that spammers and people who are doing email fraud are masters of that. When you get an email that says, attaches your 3495 invoice for your flowers that you ordered for Valentine's Day. And you go, I didn't order flowers for Valentine's Day. What are they talking about? Gotcha. Yeah. And and I think as we think about it, it's a lot easier to trick humans than to trick computers. And, and just think about it. I'll, I'll give you two use cases you can see in every organization. One is there's someone in an HR function who has to read resumes, right? So if we send that recruiter a PDF that's malicious in nature saying, here's my resume, please read it. They're probably going to open that document because that's in their job function. Mm -hmm. You could also find the same example in a logistics or procurement organization saying, here's the, the invoice or here's our signed non-disclosure agreement to your terms. And if that's a malicious document, once again, they're probably going to click and enable macros or open that malicious PDF. And so having defenses against these types of attacks is necessary today because that's how attackers are going to come into an organization. And let's think about the types of attacks that are out there. We started out talking about BEC, business email compromise, or CEO fraud is kind of what the non-FBI people call it, but the Bureau calls it BEC. Business email compromise is essentially impersonation. It's trying to convince somebody, usually chief financial officer, dispersing clerk, somebody like that, to issue funds when they should not be. Or it could be a little bit more sophisticated. I worked a case last year where a client was compromised, where somebody got into their email through email account compromise. Meaning what? At one two-step of send phishing email, user clicks on the link, it brings up a page, it looks just like the Microsoft page with the nice little Rio de Janeiro picture from the mountain says, please enter your Microsoft ID and password to log in to view the document. And the hapless user thinks they're just logging in to get a document. And in fact, they get presented with some document, but they didn't send their credentials to Microsoft because they didn't bother to look at the top. It didn't say Microsoft online. It was something other like evilhacker.ru. And so once the attacker was able to get into the email account, they just sat back and logged in in the evenings, taking a look at all the emails that went out and came in. And when they saw an outbound invoice to a client, they chased it down with a follow-on email after the legitimate email holder had gone home for the day saying, oh, by the way, our banking information's changed. Would you please make sure you send your payment to this bank? 
Well, they were able to pull that off three different times to a tune of over 100,000 US dollars. And doing the investigation was able to trace back those IP addresses and that found out that uh, in the Lagos, 100,000 goes a long way. So business email compromise, email account compromise or lurking in the mailbox might be not just stealing money, but stealing intellectual property. Also, fake invoices. About six years ago, Lithuanian scammer was fingered and arrested for taking over $100 million from Facebook and Google, set up a complex series of domains and things like that, invoicing for equipment that was never sent, but it was plausible enough that people clicked on it and sent it. Uh, false campaigns, the clicks, links for COVID and face mask and PPE at 50% discount, but 80% for you, just click here, surge beginning last March, and it's going to probably still be out there. But of course, the most dangerous type of attack that we often see that almost always, always, always comes in through email is ransomware. Just think about it. If you're an attacker, the easiest insertion technique is to, well, let the victim do it for you. And so you give them something plausible where they can click on it, activate malicious content, go to a link that has some content that's going to do something and get it going. And we can probably have an entirely separate discussion about the evolution of ransomware. But the original version of a denial of service, which is an attack on availability, CIA, confidentiality, integrity, availability, is more and more organizations have better backups. And they say, well, we don't have to pay the ransom because we were already backed up. Now it's a threat of disclosure, confidentiality, which says, well, okay, understand you don't want to pay, but we have all of this PII of your customers. And under the regulatory framework in which you operate, you're going to be facing about a $500,000 fine, and you're going to have to report, which means reputational damage, et cetera, or perhaps you might want to reconsider. All these types of attacks can come in through email. And as a result, we have to have a multifaceted set of defenses to make sure that we're training our humans, building our uh, defenses also technically to keep that attack vector at bay. Yeah, I, I like this overview of attacks from the false campaigns, fake invoices, email account compromises, business email compromises, and ransomware. You know, I just think about how many organizations where you have a third-party partner that you're working with constantly, and maybe this is a smaller company, right? They're doing something that's of value to your company, but they don't have multi-factor authentication. They don't have the same security setup that your company does. And lo and behold, you've had a conversation with one of their sales associates, and you've been going back and forward for, for years now, and suddenly that compromise of that account has occurred. And, and you don't know, you're just expecting another email from Dave or Jan over at the, the company, but this time it's something that gets you. So when we start to think about it, I think we need to go back to the fundamentals. Well, what are email records and, and how do they work? And what might be some technical controls that CISOs need to understand so we can really safeguard the organization? G-Mark, do you have any wisdom on that? Yeah, great question, Austin. I think you've hit to what some of the things that we need to know as CISOs and aspiring CISOs. We've got to get our hands dirty a little bit in terms of understanding some of the technology. So there's three primary ways in which we could use tool sets to reduce the likelihood 
that our domains are going to be used for supporting fake emails. Now, the interesting thing is, is that when we're going to talk about three things, SPF, Sender Policy Framework, all right, and Domain Keys Identified Mail, or DKIM, and then the third one is Domain-Based Message Authentication, Reporting, and Conformance, or DMARC. Now, don't worry about memorizing all those things. We pretty much only talk about those by the initials, SPF, DKIM, and DMARC. Well, let's take a look at them and how do they work. The idea is this, when email was first developed and it's simply put out there, it has a header which says, well, I'm sending it from this source to this destination. And of course the header contains a lot of information that it accumulates. You can keep of where it routes. It goes from this mail server to this mail server to this mail server. We can add additional information up there in the header, none of which typically ever gets viewed by the user. And the typical user, if they go to Outlook, if they're using, let's say, a web-based client, or more likely, if we don't allow web-based email, which we don't, just pick any particular email, open it up, click on File and Properties, and under Internet Header, there's going to be this big, long set of text. Now, one of the things you can do with a big, long set of text is submit that to one of these online tools that lets you examine it. But who does that? I would suggest nearly nobody. Therefore, we can't depend upon our users inspecting the headers of every single email that they get to make sure that it looks legitimate. So what we do is we use automated tools. One of the tools that's out there is called SPF, or Sender Policy Framework. Now, what do we mean by sender policy framework? Well, policy, of course, is a set of controls that we utilize to tell us what we ought to do in certain circumstances. And framework is a structured way of doing things. So notice, though, it's not the receiver policy. It's a sender policy. Well, what do you mean sender policy? Well, if I send you an email and I publish a sender policy framework statement, it's telling you, the recipient, what you ought to do with my email. Well, what if you don't bother to check SPF? Then it doesn't work. It's kind of like fax machines. It doesn't help to be the only person in town with a fax machine. You got to have someone else with a fax machine. So here's what happens. The SPF record gets published as a text entry in your DNS record. And so now instead of the DNS simply having like an A record saying, here's my IP address, we will have SPF records. Now, what it will simply do is it will identify the valid mail servers, which is our, our authorized sources. And so as a result, what happens is a recipient can configure their mail server to say, if I ever get a mail from Ross, I will go to Ross's mail server and say, hey, is that legit? Well, you don't even have to go to the server because what if it's not from Ross's mail server? I go to the DNS record. That's published. Everybody sees your DNS and say, Ross, who have you given permission to send emails on your behalf? So what you're telling me here is SPF really prevents a lot of the spoofing, right? It, it's almost like a certificate authority in many ways where you're saying this person is legitimately authorized to send this email or their delegates have been authorized. And if it's not one of those, then you know, danger, danger, Will Robinson, mm -hmm. eyes up, right? Yeah, SPF, think of that as spoof or anti-spoof, sender policy framework. So here's an example. You could say, for example, in your record that my IP address 
of my mail server is 1.2.3.4. And so what will happen then is you publish a record that says, hey, if the mail comes from 1.2.3.4, it's from me. And if it comes from anybody else, follow my policy. What's my policy? Four different policies you can say. You could say pass, basically means if it comes from anybody else, we'll accept it anyway. <laughs> it's not a very good idea, but you can do that. You could say fail, which means if it doesn't come from my mail server, don't just assume it's not from me. Go ahead and delete it and throw it away and don't even deliver it to your recipient. That's a hard fail. A soft fail is maybe you want to go ahead and quarantine this thing and then let me know the fact that it got quarantined. Give me some response back. Or neutral, you know, go figure out what you want to do. Now, what happens is this. It's not, we're not talking about super complex statements, a single line of text in your DNS record. So let me give you kind of an example so you can kind of get a feel for it. If you had a, a V equals SPF1, and they always are going to have to begin with that qualifier, SPF1. That's how they know it's a record. And let's say it says V equals SPF1 space A space tilde or not all. All right. What does that mean? It means my sender policy framework says, look at my A records. Whatever IP address is in my A record is a legitimate sending domain. And if it has, for example, tilde all, meaning it's a soft fail, if you will, once you get an email from any other source, you ought to flag it as spam for your users. Or you can do whatever you want to do, whatever your own policy is. But no, it's not from me. Well, that's great if I've got my mail server at my A record. But what if I have a whole bunch of mail servers? Or if I have a whole range of IP addresses? I could specify a range of IP addresses. And then say, only accept mail that comes from this range of IP addresses. Okay, what if I'm using Microsoft 365? No problem. They've already thought of that. We use an include statement. So now I could have a V equals SPF1, include colon SPF.protection.outlook.com, and then minus all or tilde all. What does that say? If you get a message from me and it didn't come from my Microsoft mail servers, it's not really from me. Throw it out. And now, whether you run your own mail server or you have a whole IP address range of servers or you outsource to a third-party cloud provider, you can specifically tell the world whether or not this email should be trusted simply based on the source IP address. Yeah, I, I like what you're you're teaching us here, Gmark. I think there's a lot of value. You know, as I just go back to simple networking terms in my mind, and I think about firewalls. You know, you whitelist to permit things in, and you blacklist to to block things from coming in. And you know, you would see some problems with this, where you might say, okay, we're going to whitelist uh, SurveyMonkey or something to come in through these firewall rules. But then we would just see attackers use SurveyMonkey or other things to start launching uh, attacks and in, in, in nefarious emails to come in. But using some of these more advanced approaches here with the sender policy framework really allow another level of introspection into how email is getting into your environment. Yeah. And so we say, hey, this is great. I'm sure this will work wonderfully. We're done. Unfortunately, it's not perfect. And why do I mean that? It turns out that 
what happens is the servers, when they're checking a server center policy framework, is going to check a, the header that says, what is going to be your envelope from header? Basically, where is the message coming from? But the email clients are usually displaying the message or the friendly header. So what, what does that mean? It means that if I send this thing from evilhacker.ru, but I claim that it's coming from gmark at gmark.com, what's going to happen is the SPF is going to go ahead, hmm, this thing came from evilhacker.ru. Well, guess what? Evilhacker.ru has an SPF policy. And their SPF policy says, accept their mail that comes from 6.6.6.6. So I guess it's a legitimate email. So in it goes. The problem is the mail server, which was checking that mail header, that one that gets displayed to the user is the friendly header. It says, oh, this is from gmark at gmark.com. Oh, it must be good. It got through my filters and boom, they just blew right past it. And so think about it this way. I remember years ago when I used to um, run my email servers, I didn't have an email server. I just used Gmail. I mean, Gmail is great. Their spam filtering is awesome. Plus it couldn't beat the price. And what I did is I just told Gmail, it says, send the message as if it's coming from my own domain. And Gmail for years was very happy to do so because nobody cared. With the advent of SPF now, what happens is Google has to separate that out. So if I send you an email, you're going to get it from me that would say, hey, this is from, for example, gmhardy at nationalsecurity.com would be great if I ran my own server. But what it says is from gmarkhardy at gmail.com on behalf of gmarkhardy at nationalsecurity.com. It basically says, look, we're going to play all our cards face up so that you know that you can see both headers. And now the user could see something like, hey, this thing says it's from evilhacker.ru on behalf of Gmark Hardy. That doesn't look quite right. But again, it still relies upon the user just a little bit to be your backstop. So it goes a long, long way, but it's not exactly perfect. Okay, so this DKIM, or Domain Key Identified Mail, really helps resolve what text is being displayed to a user versus what text is actually happening. And you just think of any hot link, you know, you can type, you know, click the link, but it really has the HTTP URL. We can do the same thing for, for these going forward. Can you tell me anything else about this? Sure, well, Domain Keys Identified Mail goes a little bit further. What we're going to use is a public-private key pair. We talked about crypto previously, so hopefully the understanding is, is that when we talk about asymmetric cryptography, we will build a pair of keys, one public, one private, where what encrypts with one is decrypted with the other and vice versa. Well, the public key, by definition, could be published to anybody. And in fact, we publish it in our DNS record. And so we'll create a DNS record that has a V equals DKIM1, and we'll take the key type, let's say it's an RSA key or something like that, whatever crypto, and then here is the public key. Now what happens? The sender, not the individual user, but the sending email software, the server, is going to sign the email with a private key. It's going to take certain elements of the header of the field and then go ahead and encrypt that with the private key. 
and that then gets attached as part of the header. The recipient gets an email and it says, hmm, there's DKIM information in the header. That must mean that the sender is using DKIM. So let's go ahead and take a look at the sender's DNS record. Hey, by golly, there is a DKIM record in there and there's a public key in it. So I'm going to take that public key and I'm going to attempt to decrypt that encrypted value or that digital signature, so to speak, in the header. If it decrypts and it makes sense and it matches the message, it says, hey, this had to have been G-marked because he's the only person on the planet with that private key. And therefore, in you go. Now, DMARC is well known. There's a Mimecast report. They're a company that do, does some uh, training and education. said 97% of the folks that they talked to were aware of DMARC, but only 28% were actually using it. And it's not that hard to do. And then, oh, I'm sorry, I just, I just jumped from DKIM to DMARC, didn't I? Okay, so how's that for a... Uh, uh, a, a mental gap. All right, so let me finish up with DKIM because I'm getting so excited about DMARC because that really fixes a lot of stuff. So anyway, back to DKIM. Receiver gets this response. They check to see if the decrypted value matches what it should be. If it matches, then the sender had to be legitimate. And therefore, there's only one sender in the planet who could have made that. Otherwise, what happens? It fails, and we say, hey, this is a nice try, but it's not really that good. And so, therefore, don't believe it. So, therefore, what we find with DKIM is that I have cryptographic protection. But then again, it kind of has the same potential uh, risks with regard to SPF with respect to which mail header is being checked. You could check the DKIM header of evilhacker.ru, and it's like, yep, that's really from the evil hacker. But if the user is displayed a legitimate recipient, that's a problem. One last technical insight for DKIM. Rotate your keys. Just on the chance that maybe keys get old and stale. We found out with Let's Encrypt that the best thing to do with keys in, with regard to websites, if you're going to go ahead and have key life is about three months. And so rotate your keys quarterly, add a new one. Now, I don't just say tear down the old one and display the new one because it takes a couple of days for people to go ahead and check their, their, their keys because they might receive an email, but they didn't open it till tomorrow. So put a little entry in your reminder, once a quarter, add a new key, and then wait a few days and take the old one down. And now what you have is you have a rolling key base. So we're going from the SPF, which is like the old school whitelisting IP addresses. And now we're going to DKIM, which is really adding non-repudiation, which is the ability to verify the authorship of who's sending emails through some type of encryption such as RSA. So so I think now we're getting getting somewhere here, G Mark. Mm -hmm. Now you, you briefly touched over a third term that, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know about. What, what is DMARC that, that you speak of here? Yeah, so DMARC kind of pulls it all together. That's domain-based message authentication, reporting, and conformance. Well, that's a mouthful. But really what DMARC is, is that much like the DNS record that we have for sender policy framework and the domain keys, we can publish a DMARC policy, which basically says what happens 
if something fails your SPF and or your DKIM. And so now we get around this header mismatch vulnerability and what would tell recipients what they ought to be doing with the email that fails this DMARC check. So if the mail passes the SPF as an authorized sender, or you get a valid DKIM signature, and that's good, send it to the inbox. But if there's a failure there, what happens under the policy? What we say then is a V equals DMARC1, P equals whatever the policy is. It could be none, which says, send me some feedback. Let me know what you got, but don't do anything special. So now if you ever get an email from me, your mail server, tell my mail server, hey, we got a mail. And uh, by the way, it lets me know that my mail is getting delivered. Yeah, sort of, kind of, maybe useful. Quarantine is another value. says it lets the receiver of the mail treat that email as suspicious. A lot of times that quarantine is going to bump it into the spam folder. Now, you could also be the most strict and say your DMARC policy is reject. And what you're telling recipients is, is that if they check DMARC and your policy says reject, it's going to outright reject all emails that fail to check and throw them away. Now, there's two schools of thought here. If you go through and you take a look at some of the tool sets that are out there, and we'll make available some of the tools for us in our supplementary material here, so I don't have to read domain names to you. One of them will say, hey, unless you have fail or reject basically, then your policy isn't strong enough. And there's other schools of thought that says, well, you want to leave it up to the recipient with regard to the quarantine, because sometimes there might be a little bit of problem, maybe around the time you rotate keys or some failure to get a response, because this is one of the things that I've noticed. When you're delivering an email, you've only got a certain amount of time between when the email arrives and when the user opens it. So if an email arrives right away, and there's a network delay, and it doesn't have a chance to get an answer back to say, hey, DKIM, give me your key. Well, network's busy. It's going to take a while. At some point in time, the mail server is like, look, I can't wait forever. I got to pass this to the user. So it just says, yeah, it didn't pass DKIM. In fact, it would have if the server waited around long enough. And so as a result, if you just go to a very, very strict reject at those few times, and I've seen this happen, when you don't get a prompt response from the sending DNS server, you end up throwing away a perfectly legitimate email and your customer will then have a denial of service attack inflicted upon themselves. At least at quarantine, they could say, hey, I got an email from you, Ross, but it was in my spam folder for the last couple of days. I don't know why it ended up there. And the reason it ended up there might have been just a transmission delay. Plus, for any organization that actually has an incident response team that can, let's say, police some of this quarantined activity, you can coordinate that to organizations like FSISAC and other places where you can share what you believe are malicious emails entering your environment mm -hmm. and help not just your organization, but many others. So that may be another value add for using a quarantine feature, if you will. Yeah, that's a great point. I know that I get um, a lot of information. So I get the FSISAC uh, on a regular basis coming into my phone. I've also got some other heads up that come in. And uh, let me go ahead and open up my cell phone real quick and take a look at something that I uh, just recently got. 
And of course, I wasn't planning on pulling it up. And naturally, Outlook is throwing me deep into an email. It's like pops four or five times to get it. There we go. So I also subscribe to something called Threat Connect. And what Threat Connect does is it gets community contributions. So it tells me about weird domains that get registered or potential sources of uh, problems, which allow me to do in real time, keep up to date. Alternatively, one of the things we could do is to use some sort of a tool to go ahead and block domains that we think could be bad. Cisco Umbrella is a tool that I utilize. And what I find out is that it allows me to rely on somebody else's threat intel where they will go ahead and block links. For example, if someone tries to click through on something and say, nope, that's a known evil spot or that's a known that. And you can, they've got all kinds of different categories. You can say, nope, I don't let you go there because we think this is political or this is pornography or this is um, weapons, or there's a whole bunch of categories. It's another category they have that said newly seen domains, which gets a lot of false positives from time to time. And so you got to be careful if you're going to use a tool like that. It's not so much interdicting your email as it is interdicting what people can click on. So if you're dealing a lot with those Silicon Valley startups that are just creating new domains, that could be a potential problem for an organization. Yeah, and I, and I get daily reports and I review them and it allows me to say, so let me go back here and take a look and see what I got here. So here is my scheduled report. Good morning. Here's your last 24 hours scheduled security activity named, quote, past 24 hours security activity report. Wow, that's clever. The table below shows an abbreviated HTML version of the report. The attached CSV contains the entire data set. And what will happen is I'll get two reports. One is going to be going to be false positives, basically, yeah, we think that this might have been a false positive. And so that's where you could typically find these new domains. And then there's also one that says security activity report, which is, yeah, these were the bad stuff that was absolutely blocked. And so what we've done is over the years, I've tuned these lists. Now, a lot of people will rely primarily upon the vendor to give them the threat intel. And they don't do their own homework or every now and then someone will call up and said, Hey, I need to get through to a particular domain and you want, and you go ahead and you put on the allow list. But here's what I've done. If you take a look at the list of top level domains, okay. If you go to IANA, what you'll find out is that the, um, list of TLDs, which is what comes to the right of the final dot, what are we used to.com? Okay, or .net or .org or whatever. And in fact, the big seven, the original .com, .net, .org, .gov, .mil, .edu, and .int. Now, yeah, there's a .arpa, but that's not really a real domain. Um, but that's sort of started out. And if you think about it, that was kind of short-sighted because .gov, only the United States has a government, and .mil, only the United States has a military. The rest of the world could fit into .int international. Well, I figured those are probably legit. If someone corresponds with you for something from a .com or .org, all right, I'll deal with that, or .edu. But there is 1,504 top-level domains as of yesterday, and it's updated on a daily basis. If you go ahead and you can take a look at what are out there. So now 
Your question is this, when was the last time you did business with a dot hair or a dot adult or a dot Black Friday or dot XXX? And if you go down the list, you'll find a tremendous number of TLDs. Now they're all listed there, by the way, quick little detour. So a two letter top level domain is always, always, always going to be a country code. .us, .ca, .cn, whatever. Three or more letters are, can then be either a normal top-level domain or what they call a GTLD, a generic top-level domain. And the generic top-level domain application process takes a lot of money and some time, and then you have to go ahead and manage that whole TLD. So if you look at the root zone database, you can find out who owns those, and we'll include these links as well in the podcast notes. But for example, the very first alphabetical link is .aaa. Not aaa.com, it's something that ends in .aaa and that's run by, well, the American Automobile Association. Okay, fine. But then as you go down there, you find out there's some interesting things like Binky Moon LLC <laughs> runs .academy, .accountants, etc. Occasionally companies get a little bit fancy and they try to go ahead and migrate to this, but I block literally every single one of those TLDs with the exception of the big seven and you know what? .io. Everybody loves .io and I'll bet you you'd never been there. I have. It's in British Indian Ocean territories. It's 999 miles south of the tip of India, about one and a half degrees south of the equator in the middle of the Indian Ocean. But IO sounds pretty cool and so they make a spectacular amount of money giving out .ios. So that, you got a whitelist. I think this is really good advice. And, and here's a way I would also apply it in, in an organization. In the U.S., there are certain countries that are sanctioned that you shouldn't do business with, right? So mm -hmm. maybe you're not allowed to do business with Iranian entities. You could use something like this blacklisting on a .ir for... Uh, Iranian uh, websites. And then this would be a way that you could help comply with some of those OFAC and, and Treasury guidance uh, for emails. Now, it doesn't stop them if they you know, use a Gmail and they're coming in that way, but it is a good way to start removing what you don't need as attack vectors in your enterprise. And that's a good point. Now, here's an interesting little side note that you might find interesting. So several years back, they came up with the concept of internationalized top-level domains. Basically, what if you don't use a Western alphabet? What if you use kanji or Cyrillic or Tamil or some other language? And so what they came up with is a way to essentially do what's called punycode, P-U-N-Y code, where those TLDs would begin in Roman text with X-ray November, XN hyphen hyphen, and then some alphanumeric string. Now, what happens is if you go to the IANA database and you type in one of these sequences into the browser window of your web, for example, uh, the very first one is XN hyphen hyphen 11 Bravo 4 Charlie 3 Delta. All right, so what? Who cares? Well, if you type www dot in front of that, immediately it's going to translate over to the foreign language. 
character set. That's done automatically because you can't type those characters on your keyboard, but your web browser can interpret them. So why do I mention that? Is it turns out that there's some 150 or so of these um, internationalized domain names. And if you relied on a tool, for example, like the Cisco umbrella, you couldn't type those in. They're editor would say, hey, you put a hyphen or a number to the right of the dot, and those are illegal, so you can't block them. And so it was an interesting standoff that I had with the developers, and it actually, I got it changed. I had to go all the way up to the chief security officer of Cisco to do so, uh, but they fixed it because you couldn't block those up until a few months ago. And what the difficulty there was, what happens if someone's going to run a ransomware or command and control network or bot network through one of those internationalized domain names and you have no way to block it, even if you're depending on a tool. So that you can now do. And so be careful of the fact that you have these TLDs that are going to look weird. They're going to be X-ray November hyphen hyphen something. But when you type them into the web browser, they get immediately translated into a different character set. So I don't want to delay any more on this, but the whole idea is do a business analysis. With whom do you correspond? Go back through the last three, four, five months of DNS logs, of email logs, etc. Prioritize, and then you're pretty sure you can go ahead and determine which of these TLDs that are not ComNet, Org, Gov, Mil, Edu, and IO are legitimate, and maybe carve those out. Otherwise, by default block them. And if there's a new business requirement for using it, have a way so your people to know that, hey, you need to get in touch with us. Now, why do I mention all this? And why am I chewing up all this time? Because when we did the analysis of a lot of ransomware, we found out that they would use domains that would end in, for example, like .xyz. Well, so what? Why would somebody want to use .xyz? Why not go ahead and use, um, I don't know, something else? Well, it turns out that who runs .xyz? Well, that's run by xyz.com. And they may have a requirement, unlike VeriSign or GoDaddy or whomever you could register with, that you don't have to pay right away. If you're running a ransomware campaign, I'm not giving business advice to criminals, by the way. They've already figured this out. What happens is this. Hey, we're going to send out 100,000 ransomware emails. And I want everyone to have a unique Bitcoin address so I can figure out who paid, so I know who to give the keys. Everybody is going to have their own unique key on the back end, but everybody's going to have their own unique URL to go to. It's going to be your own separate domain. Now it really makes it difficult for defenders to block it. But if I use an XYZ domain, I don't have to pay for it for three days. What happens? My cost of business goes down to zero. I tell the customer, you assume the time cost. You got 72 hours to pay the ransom, and then the key's gone forever. He's not really gone forever. The domain's gone forever because they never paid for it. And so as a result, that's another good reason not to permit these fly-by-night, sorry if you don't legitimately own one, but these, uh, I should say, non-standard TLDs because it's very likely not a valid business case for doing business with them, but very possibly danger for doing business with them. Yeah, I think that's really good advice at how we can secure our infrastructure. I'm I'm also seeing this idea of URL shorteners being used more and more common, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing people, let's say, have this malicious website and replacing it with a bit.ly link or some type of URL shortener. And 
and, and not only that, but it even happens in some of our website protections where maybe we have a long website, but a proof point would replace it with a proof point link. And so when we see those things, it's really hard now for any readers of email to say, is this a good link or is this a bad link? Because all I see is proof point URL or all I see is bit.ly. I got to click on the link to see what it actually resolves to, which means I may have already ran something bad. What, what would we do in, in some of these scenarios? Is there any other thing we can help our, our user base from a security awareness perspective, if you will? Well, one thing with Bitly, and it may not be for every URL shortener, but I know they do this, is that if you have that shortened URL, which I consider the internet equivalent of open your mouth and close your eyes, I got a surprise, put a plus sign at the very end of the URL, then hit enter. What that does is that takes you to the control page for whomever set up the link. It used to show you here's how many clicks you had, here's the distribution by month, et cetera. And here, by the way, is the destination. Now you get a sneak peek. So if you have a bit.ly link that takes you to evilhacker.ru slant ransomware.exe, or I have one that takes me to legitimate website, cisotradecraft.com slant download, I could tell before I ever get there. Great. Well, I think this has been a huge lesson learned in how technically sophisticated you can really go with securing email. Gmark, do you want to just do a quick wrap-up of, of, of what the key points you want listeners to take away from today's show? Sure. So, Ross, what we said is, like all of our other issues we talk about here, start with the business problem. Recognize that humans are your potentially your weakest link and therefore where we need to go ahead and make some investment. But beyond just security awareness training, let's go ahead and use the technical tools to really enhance that. So what we can do is with our mail records, we can set up a sender policy framework, which basically says these are the IP addresses or the server names that are allowed to send email and don't trust anything from anybody else. A DKIM, domain keys identified mail, which sets up a public private key pair where I can cryptographically prove that this email really did come from my server. And then DMARC, which is basically looking for that entire policy to say, what should the recipient do? Should they quarantine it? Should they reject it? Or something like that. And there's tool sets that you can use to check your own mail servers. And I recommend you do that to see how it you look like. We can do domain blocking and block all those TLDs that are not part of what it is that we um, do business with. We can rely on third-party threat intelligence to have uh, blocks for those. And you know, one thing we didn't mention, but it's sort of obvious, is remove active macro-enabled office files and things like that. Those should not get through. Um, make sure that you're careful with your URL shorteners and think about how your users get educated. We can do a lot of awareness training in this area, and you probably should. All right. Well, Gmark, thank you for the great advice. You know, this has been a frontline exclusive on the global war on email. Thank you, listeners, for staying with us. Please feel free to share this episode. Subscribe to the podcast so you get the latest episodes right on your phone, on your mobile device, or or on your, your work laptop, if you will. We love having you, and thank you again for listening. Take care, everyone.